0: Let's go to Steve's case. This is a currently 65-year-old woman who initially presented in 1994 at age 53 with a 2.5-centimeter primary tumor infiltrating lobular carcinoma with extensive LCIS. The tumor was strongly estrogen and progesterone receptor positive, and even in 1994, we were getting her to assays not by the DECO method but by an IHC-like method, and it was negative, She elected to undergo bilateral mastectomy because of the lobular carcinoma and had one of 23 positive lymph nodes on the ipsilateral side and LCIS on the contralateral side. She entered on a clinical trial. It was an ECOG and, I believe, a SWOG trial done at the time using moderate-dose adriamycin. It was calculated at 54 milligram per meter squared so that one could give six cycles instead of four and the Cytoxan dose was 1.2 gram per meter squared. There was a sequential arm. She was on the concomitant arm. That was six cycles of therapy. And at the completion of the six cycles, she received five years of tamoxifen. That was completed in December 2000. At the completion of the five years of tamoxifen, we were participating in MA17, and we did discuss the trial with her, and she was actually willing to participate. This is a woman who always wanted something aggressive if it were available. But she was deemed ineligible because she had been on a previous clinical trial. So based on the fact that there was no data available, she was followed without treatment. I am in the practice of checking tumor markers, and we're doing that. And three years later, in 2003, when the MA17 data became available, we did discuss the data. But at that point, she had been off tamoxifen for three years, and elected to follow her without any additional treatment. However, about a year and a half later in November 2004, which was now 10 years from her initial presentation, she was found to have a marker elevation, CA 2729, which had been normal at roughly six-month intervals, was in the range of 80 and was followed on a few occasions and was between 80 and 100. And her staging workup, which at that time were CAT scans and a bone scan, were negative. We actually had a discussion about the meaning of tumor markers and the fact that perhaps some of the patients that were benefiting from letrozole in the MA17, had they been followed by tumor markers, might have had microscopic disease that wouldn't have been picked up by anything else other than a tumor marker, and she bought into that. I like the idea also, and put her on letrozole.
1: And at that point, how long had she been off the tamoxifen? Five years. If the tumor markers, Cliff, had been normal or even with the way they were, what do you think about that decision?
2: So when the MA17 was unblinded, I think it was a median follow-up of about two and a half years, if I remember correctly, and crossover was allowed for those patients absent any data that crossover then would matter. At the time, many of us thought that that was sort of out there. There was no evidence that it could help. But in retrospect, and with some other data, at least I've come to see it differently. We'll ignore the tumor markers for the moment. ER ER-positive breast cancer like this has a very slow, steady, chronic rate of recurrence. So that raises two questions. One, what's the right specific strategy? But two, in terms of natural history, can you change the natural history at various times along the way? MA17 is narrowly a positive trial for letrozole versus placebo, but it's broadly a positive trial for delayed therapy versus early therapy, meaning it shows you that in the second half decade, it is possible to change risk. And they're re-randomizing MA17 now for years 11 to 15, a third half decade. So that's one bit of evidence for me that says maybe the specific timing of all this doesn't matter as much as we thought. I have another really left-field view of this. If you think about the P1 prevention trial, and I think I've mentioned this to you before in the past in this context, there's no landmark event. You don't have a diagnosis of breast cancer that gets you on the study, but what does the study show? It shows that for the five years that you're on tamoxifen, you have a lowered risk of breast cancer, and let's not kid ourselves. It's not prevention. It's treatment of subrosa disease. So all that taken together makes me think that if a patient happens to wander in out of the desert who hasn't had therapy and it's years out with ER-positive disease, it's not insane to consider trying to lower her risk then. The elevated marker is almost irrelevant to that decision, and I wouldn't have thought so long and hard about this for this patient. If she wanted therapy, I would say, okay, it's not crazy based on what we know.
0: At the point that decision was made, actually, we didn't have the updated information on placebo versus letrozole in the group that elected to go on that right. never went well, that, on Some, some questions So that has actually numbers. helped yeah. me to make that decision with patients sure. subsequently three, four years out. Right. And, you know, so at that point, when we first had the decision in 2003, I didn't employ letrozole. But clearly, by a year later, with a marker elevation, I used that. And this was still before that data was available.
2: So I'll just add, you know, we proposed a study of fulvestrant in the cooperative groups without linkage to the prior therapy, meaning if a patient came in, was a few years out, had heard that there were new adjuvant hormone therapies, we would take them on. The idea being that our endpoint was hazard rate not necessarily a time-to-event classically, but just hazard rate. And our hypothesis is that you can change the hazard whenever you get in there to change it. And in fact, we ended up not being able to do that trial really for other reasons, but there are other groups actually that are proposing to do that. Dan,
3: any comments? There's a French adjuvant study, which is probably published in Annals of Oncology five or six years ago, and that was delayed use of tamoxifen for ER positives, and even then there was benefit. And as I think we've indicated, it's a common theme that the erpr positive patients are a different kettle of fish and this is a chronic relapsing disease and hormonal therapy therefore works the Other reason why I think it's reasonable to use endocrine therapy in this setting with an elevated marker, and a significantly elevated marker several times, is risk versus benefit. And the drugs we're talking about are not particularly that toxic; they're not like cytotoxics. So that I think it's eminently reasonable, and I think all of us feel much more comfortable. And when Craig Henderson said this to me 20 years ago, the hormones were great, and you know everybody was using chemo. I sort of looked at him like. You know, he was crazy, but Craig was right. It has a good benefit-to-risk ratio, and therefore it's eminently reasonable to suppress the disease that you know is there before there's a clinical event.
0: So what happened? She went on letrozole. She had one year of stable marker or a decrease in marker and no clinical progression. And then about a year later, she had a significant rise in tumor marker. Now we're talking in the range of 150 from 80, Mm. and previously had gone down to 50 or 60 with the letrozole. We again had a discussion, and at that point PET scans were available. We did a PET scan, which was negative in addition to her other staging, so she still had subclinical disease, and elected to switch her from a non-steroidal to a steroidal aromatase inhibitor just based on the presumption that there was some microscopic progression. She remained stable on that for almost another year, or at least eight months, I believe. And then the marker increased to 250. We again did a PET scan, which was still negative. And at that point, again had a discussion, I was not about to switch her to chemotherapy with negative scans, but I switched her to Fazladex with a loading schedule. That brings us to May of 2006. She was on the Fazladex probably no more than four months marker just to understand even with the loading schedule went from 250 to about almost 400 and she had not been scanned from the time that she started on the fazladex but she had a negative scan four or five months before may 2006 she presented with a colonic obstruction went to the or with the presumption that she had a probable colonic tumor and actually the original surgery was done as a loop colostomy so there was virtually no she hadn't been prepped they were not planning to do a resection and so the surgery was absolutely just a palliative loop colostomy with no pathology available. Again the presumption by the surgeon was that this was probably a colon primary and the plan was to go back after a very brief period of time obviously and operate and do a resection after she'd been evaluated. She underwent a colonoscopy which was entirely negative so there was no intrinsic colonic lesion and went to laparotomy where she was found to have the typical lobular histology she had a almost a six centimeter area of extrinsic compression of the colon with pathology confirming lobular carcinoma and she had small volume peritoneal disease that was not appreciated by any previous scans the pathology was, again, ER positive, PR negative, and HER2 was done by FISH and was non-amplified. Postoperatively, after about four to six weeks after surgery, she had a PET scan, which was the first that she had had because of the surgery and the fact that she had not had an opportunity for that. And at that point, there was a solitary bony lesion seen, and there was uptake in the area of the colostomy, but it was felt to be most likely post-operative, meaning that the small-volume peritoneal disease was still negative on PET scan. At that point, we're now talking about mid-June of 2006, we again had a long discussion, and she was started on capecitabine at roughly 825 per meter squared, BID two weeks on, two weeks off. She tolerated that. We were able to escalate the dose to close to 1,000 per meter without significant toxicity, and she remains free of disease clinically the marker, which had been useful, decreased from 400 prior to starting being down to 60, and a PET scan was just actually done last week. And at this point, the bony lesion, which was really the only thing that was positive on PET, is negative. And she's on bisphosphonates also, by the way. How's she doing on the capecitabine? She's doing fine. We escalated slightly, and now I'm keeping her at, it's a little under 1,000 per meter BID, without too much in the way of hand-foot syndrome.
1: Dan, any comments?
3: A good drug works, and you're happy. The only question might be, and again, I think it's an evolution, and this was alluded to much earlier, is that what's known now about chronic use of endocrine deprivation therapy, mainly AIs, is that one of the mechanisms of the escape is hypersensitivity of the estrogen receptor, and that if you restore estrogen levels to physiologic levels or above, that you actually can get apoptosis in preclinical models. So that one of the oldest therapies, which I think Mark Lipman did a lot of in the 70s, was high-dose estrogen and things like that. And one might consider that if there's non-life-threatening disease, is another endocrine manipulation. And I believe, if I remember correctly, last San Antonio, there was also a poster of patients who had failed Vaslodex who then subsequently responded to tamoxifen. So, again, it may be sort of a rebound effect. So there might be a little more mileage out of endocrine, not much, and I think it's very reasonable, though, to use a well-tolerated chemotherapeutic regimen. Cliff, any comments?
2: Well, actually, Matt Ellis is currently randomizing patients who come off of AIs for lower high-dose estrogen therapy. All right,
3: so that'll answer.
2: Yeah, so we're actually looking at that now, which is interesting, given the biases we all have. This case is really interesting, as you told the story, because this is really fairly classic for invasive lobular, and she probably had plenty of disease. The negative PET scans are not such a surprise, because these strongly ER ER-positive tumors are not PET-avid, and so I don't know that PET actually could play much of a role in, in, no, in cat But is it more prominent
3: off. lobular than ductal? Well,
1: lobulars are
2: almost, I say almost, by definition, strongly ER positive. No, no,
3: I'm saying, okay, because I have a lobular also, which the
2: PET didn't take right, on. Right, well, so we're not huge fans of PET for breast cancer, and this is part of why.
1: How often do we see this kind of intra-abdominal disease with infiltrating lobular that gets out of control to the point that that gets to be a major palliative end-of-life
2: event? I think with some frequency with this histology, we see ascites, and we have to think about repeated taps. And I'll tell you, at least when it comes to the chemo, I'm occasionally tempted to approach these as ovary cancers in terms of the chemotherapy selection when you get to that. Just something to think about. Can
1: you be more specific
2: about that and what you It you've doesn't seen? mean much. It means I actually give some platinum. Interesting.
0: Nobody ever mentions halotestin and megase. We go through all these AIs and yeah. all this stuff. You don't look that old. Right. I am. I am that old and and I had a patient one time had malignant pleural effusion. Yeah.
3: I use it. Yeah. And
0: exactly. she went on I kept telling her someday you'll get chemotherapy. Well then, you know, like twelve years later she still had not gotten chemotherapy but had heart surgery, and got mediastinitis, and died. But she never did get chemotherapy. Yeah. She got Mm-hmm. Every single hormone that you can mention.
2: I don't get to halotestin very much anymore, <laughs> but I do give. That the was her longest
0: response. Right? Actually, the issue with
2: halotestin is it actually may be estrogen therapy, because the metabolic pathway for the testosterone is through androstenedione or testosterone directly to estradiol or estrone sulfate. So it's very possible you're just front-loading the aromatase when you give the halitestin to make more estrogen anyway, which is germane to our previous discussion. I actually
0: session. cycled back to tamoxifen sure. because that yeah. was the first thing she got sure. and I ran out it, of choices. You can so sometimes...
2: megestrol acetate is reasonable. And yeah.
3: the other thing which has been recently described is that the androgen receptor actually binds to the estrogen receptor in these complexes. And I believe Memorial has an anti-androgen therapy that you're actually trying yeah. in these patients. It's not so in these see.
2: patients. It's in the triple negatives. In the triple negatives. Mm-hmm. Well, that's too simplistic it's in the ERPR negatives where we have found an androgen receptor well actually we found an estrogen receptor pathway activation despite the absence of the estrogen receptor
0: was that the alpha beta estrogen nope this is the androgen
2: receptor it turns out is probably signaling that way and so we're giving bicalutamide to patients who have ERPR negative breast cancer bicalutamide wow does anyone
3: remember VAF
1: yeah All right. Larry was part of that Uh Uh bicalutamide is that a trial you're doing yeah Phase 2. A phase 2, what specifically? The what? question
2: is, in the subset of ERPR negatives where we identify androgen receptor staining, huh. so, yeah. wow. we get response. So wow. you have to identify How the often receptor? do you see that? About 15% of the ERPR negatives. This is, by the way, part of a larger story, which is why I don't personally think there's such a thing as triple negative breast cancer. I think it's a collection of diseases.
1: This concludes our program. Special thanks to our speakers and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for Meet the Professors.